Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Showtime's new docuseries, Murder at Bighorn, dives into an MMIW hotspot in Montana to shed light on causes. Sky Hopinka's Sunflower Siege Engine takes viewers on a ride through indigenous resilience to show the intersections of sovereignty and oppression. And new filmmaker, Key Men Greyhorse, debuts his short film, I Am Home. Those are some highlights from the indigenous program at the Sundance Film Festival. We'll have a recap after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The FBI has opened an investigation into government-funded group treatment homes in Arizona that could be taking advantage of their clients. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, organizers of the homes have allegedly targeted indigenous people in the Southwest. FBI officials say the group homes based in and near Phoenix purport to serve adults with substance abuse and mental health problems. Organizers frequent flea markets, trading posts, and medical centers to pick up clients who are often intoxicated or offered alcohol. When the clients return to a functional state, they don't know where they are or how they got there and have trouble finding their way home. As a result, local law enforcement agencies have received several missing persons reports. According to the FBI, organizers of the home single out Native Americans from the Navajo Nation and other tribal lands in Arizona, New Mexico, and South Dakota. The facilities reportedly receive government funding to provide mental health and substance abuse therapy, but often no services are provided. In in addition, those running the homes allegedly tell tenants to change their ID cards to Arizona to receive Medicaid benefits and food assistance, which is used to provide for the residents or as rent payment. FBI officials are searching for those recruited to the Phoenix Group Homes from January 2020 until the present time and ask they complete an online questionnaire, which can be found at the Bureau's Phoenix office website. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. A partnership between the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation, universities, and ecological consultants is looking to restore the Bear River Massacre site. Amy Van Tatenhove has more. Over 150 years ago, the United States Army attacked a Shoshone village in northern Cache Valley, Idaho, killing nearly 500 men, women, and children. In 2008, the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation purchased part of the property in an effort to transform the site into a place of healing. Then, in 2018, the former chairman of the Northwestern Shoshone, Darren Perry, approached Utah State University with the goal of returning the land to what it was like before the pioneers arrived. Despite years of ecological degradation, Rios Pacheco, Northwestern Shoshone spiritual leader, explains the site is still important ecologically. Today is still valuable because there's still resources there, but it's just that we're not taking care of the water coming into that place that's always been uh, plentiful and we're not using the natural ways of filtering the water. We're using other ways to rush that filtering process. Brad Perry, the vice chairman of the Northwestern Shoshone, details plans for the site. We received uh, a little over five million dollars from various agencies in, in the federal, state, and local governments. It will help our drought situation. It will help the situation in the Great Salt Lake. Great Salt Lake is facing rapid ecological collapse as its waters recede and salinity levels skyrocket. Historically, the Bear River emptied into Great Salt Lake, but with much of its water now going to agriculture, water from the Bear River rarely makes it to the lake. 
Other plans include planting native and medicinal plants used by the Shoshone and creating high-quality habitat for migrating birds. Conversion of incised streams to broad floodplains will bring back wetlands to the area as well. For National Native News, I'm Amy Van Tatenhove. A trial is set to begin in a case against the United States by the Oglala Sioux Tribe in South Dakota over claims the government has failed to honor treaty obligations to provide adequate law enforcement officers. The tribe says the lack of officers has led to a drastic increase in violent crimes on the Pine Ridge Reservation and contributes to the missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis. The hearing is scheduled for Wednesday in federal court in Rapid City. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Ameren, the 100% tribally owned insurance partner working with tribal governments and enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. Info at Ameren.com. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The Sundance Film Festival wrapped up this week and we thought it was a good opportunity to feature some of the films. Organizers say this year's Indigenous Films lineup is amongst the strongest in terms of number and scope of Indigenous films. They include a powerful documentary on the MMIW issue, a cold horror flick from Sami Country, a review of a tribal media's fight for editorial control, and a collection of shorts about Native history. We'll visit those behind the films Murder in Bighorn, Sunflower Siege Engine, and I Am Home. If you're a fan of indie films and shorts, you can join us. What draws you to Native films? Do you like independent stories and documentaries that delve into Native issues? Share your comments at 1-800-996-2848. Of course, you can also connect with us on social media using our Twitter handle, 180099Native. Joining us first from New Jersey are Rizel Benali and Matthew Galkin. They are the directors and producers of Murder in Bighorn, which will premiere on the Showtime streaming app tomorrow and Sunday on TV. Rizel is Oglala Lakota and Dene. Welcome back to NAC, Rizel. Thank you. Thank you so much. Matthew, welcome to NAC as well. Thank you very much. Rizal, I'd like to start with you. Uh, tell us, why focus on Bighorn County in Montana for this film? Well, when Matthew and I first started the project, we found there to be a high concentration of cases in that area. Um, and although, you know, this is happening on my, my own reservations in Navajo country and in Pine Ridge, um, what we really seen was a, a group of folks up in Bighorn County who had been advocating tirelessly and they garnered a national stage and movement um, 
within the MMI within the MMIW movement, and uh, we we found a lot of we found that like a lot of their cases to be um, similar, and that's kind of like how it started and why we wanted to focus on that area. Now, the film, it's a three-part series, and it focuses uh, on these four specific cases uh, of young women there, teens in some cases, uh, Northern Cheyenne, Crow Country. Can you give us just a kind of a quick synopsis uh, of what uh, the narrative is uh, of the series, Roselle? Yeah, so we investigate the circumstances surrounding the the disappearances and how three of these young ladies um, turned up deceased and the, the, the plight that the families had to go through um, not only to file missing persons, uh, missing persons reports in the beginning, but then the frustration and um, the frustration they go through while trying to advocate for their, their missing loved one. And then, when their loved ones are are found to be deceased, we kind of illuminate the the issues that they have with law enforcement and trying to get proper justice and any sort of answer. And so, when you take a deeper look into what we're uh, what we've done is that we provided like a lot of historical context to to basically shine the roots of this issue that's been so urgent and continues to happen and um, why it's still happening. And, you know, we kind of lay it all out there so people can start to truly understand how one thing affects another and how uh, colonization is still the, the master root of a lot of our problems on the reservation. Now, Rozell, you shared that you're already dialed into this MMIW issue uh, in your own communities, but were there any surprises uh, working up there in Bighorn County on this documentary that you just weren't familiar with going in? Well, law enforcement, how they just will completely ignore you. I mean, hear it from the families themselves of, you know, them requesting answers or some sort of update and have the law enforcement will just completely blatantly ignore calls, not take, you know, not take any time to, to provide any sort of answers for these families. So um, I guess not that like, it's surprising, like why they wouldn't talk to us, but at the same time, it's like, here's a chance to sort of clear your name, you know, and a little bit about why you can't answer to a lot of these families and so um that was surprising you'd think that you know you'd want people to to hear your story but you know they have no interest in even doing that so um yeah yeah it's it's a really powerful film i I watched all three parts and what is it that you really want the audience to take away from the film is it to focus specifically on these four tragic cases of these young native women or is it to foster more of an increased awareness around the mmiw issue for for larger audiences well first of all i think like a little bit of both but when matthew and i first went into making this series we understood that we had to 
figure out how to tell this complex issue to a broad and wide audience, but still make it nuanced and niche enough for our own, for my own communities to um, sort of nod and stand up and be like, that's what we've been trying to say. You know what I mean? So um, it was really a balancing act. And I guess for, for me, um, the most important thing is that people can connect to these stories in a human way because um, once people start to realize and feel empathically for these families, that's when people want to start to do things, uh, do something about it. There creates an urgency. So uh, for me, as one of the directors, um, I needed to make sure that, you know, the way we handle these stories, the way we approach these families, we saw through how we weave. Mm-hmm. Matthew, I, I want to bring you in as well. And, and going into this project, uh, how dialed in to the MMIW issue were you? Was this uh, new information for you? Or were you already pretty pretty familiar with what, what some of these tragic uh, situations are in some of these Native communities? Um, this was almost 100% new to me. I mean, Showtime, who is a network that I have a, sort of a years-long relationship with, they brought me a very sort of vague general idea uh, that they wanted to explore um, what I think they categorize as a mystery within native country of um, women disappearing and um, turning up deceased. So, um, you know, it took a while for me to even uh, agree to do, I agree to do it. I felt like I'm probably wasn't as a white male, I probably wasn't the right person to tell the story and certainly not tell it alone. So um, I did ultimately think that there is something I can contribute to this uh, to this project, given that I have uh, been making docs for two decades now and, and have sort of spent most of my time in the, in the kind of commercial realm of documentaries. Um, but I knew that I wanted a Native partner, and so I reached out to Rizelle. Um, and she, um, she and I sort of ideated all of it together, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was incredibly eye-opening because I didn't know anything about MMIW. And one of the things that we tried to hold on to, given that Rizal obviously has her own lived experience as a native woman, and I have mine as a non-native white man, um, this, the idea that I didn't know anything, um, and I could almost become a surrogate for virtually every other non-native potential audience member for the series and figuring out how to how to tell the story in a way that can connect with the widest possible audiences not just within the native community but you know all around this country and ultimately you know this will be shown internationally so my white male ignorance um, we try to use as sort of an asset if uh, for lack of a better term. <laughs> I like that, an asset. For sure. Well, and you also, you folks partnered very closely uh, with a local reporter, Luella Bryn, and uh, she's featured uh, predominantly throughout this series. And, and when did she come on board, Matthew? She was actually, uh, I think she, when when we actually hit the ground, right before we started shooting, she was the first meeting that we had and ultimately we reached out to uh to luella 
more on background than anything else, we had read an op-ed that um, Luella had written after Selena Not Afraid of Death, which was a really beautiful piece and had a really um, specific perspective given that Luella was a member of the community, but she was also a journalist. So she had she had a really good perspective and an interesting perspective on um, what was going on in that area and ultimately what was going on with MMIW across the country. Um, and so we reached out to Luella, uh, who definitely played hard to get for a while. I think she was very um, suspicious. I was the one who was doing the outreach, and I think she was quite suspicious of me, um, just being another you know, non-native media person who might be swooping in to perform some sort of you know, parachute journalism. Um, <laughs> Another ignorant, like, um, the ignorant it, line again, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which, I, you know, honestly, truth be told, I was and might still be. Um, but uh, but she blew me off maybe three times. Uh, we had Zoom set up. And then ultimately, Roselle and I just kind of like, we kind of showed up at at the time uh, her place of employment was the Bighorn County News. Um and, she, you know, uh, Luella, she's incredible. She's a, uh, she is incredibly intelligent and also just a, a, a wonderful communicator. Folks, we're going to talk more uh, with the uh, directors of Murder in Bighorn after this break. And we're also going to learn more about two other films that were featured in Sundance this year. Sunflower Siege Engine and I Am Home. But before we do that, we do have to take a break. So we'll be right back. Fatal polar bear attacks are extremely rare, fewer than 20 worldwide in the past century and a half. But an Alaska village is coping with the loss of two of its residents after a polar bear attack. We'll look at the factors that drive polar bear attacks and how native residents regard the animal. That's on the next Native America Calling. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking to indigenous filmmakers who work, whose work was featured at this year's Sundance Film Festival, and we welcome you to the conversation. What Native films are drawing your attention right now? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Or just tap 1-800-99-NATIVE on that keypad. Don't wait. Our phone lines are now open. Let's take a listen to a piece of the docuseries Murder in Bighorn. This is the beginning of episode two. We already been through things with her. We taught her already to stay safe and to be strong. And I got there, and there was a BIA command vehicle there. There was cops, there was people, there was people on horses. People went in helicopters, all focused on that rest stop area, the whole area. If anybody had a chance to be found, it was Selena. If Henny was the spark, 
and Kaysera was the kindling, then Selena was the forest fire. Selena, not afraid, was last That just ignited across the media. People wanted to know what the hell is happening in Bighorn County. We're speaking with the directors and producers of Murder in Bighorn, Roselle Benali and Matthew Galkin. And Roselle, I want to ask, I mean, we have this series of cases involving Native women. Do we have any idea how these cases stack up, uh, you know, when compared with with non-Native people there? Do we know if there's a disparity in how the Native cases are handled as opposed to non-Native? Well, what we found was the underlying bias, uh, specifically in Bighorn County, that I'm sure like a lot of my Native canon relatives are pretty (laughs) familiar with. And um, when you have a bias um, or when you have a bias against a group of people, um, there comes discrimination. And I think that um, in regards to uh, other comparing other cases, I mean, while we were shooting, for example, there was a case where Gabby Petito went missing and that garnered national news fairly quickly in this, like, she went missing in this, um, in Wyoming, I believe. And Wyoming is just, uh, you know, a couple hundred miles away from Bighorn County. And it was disheartening to see the news flooded with, you know, this missing person, this, you know, young lady who clearly wasn't Native. And having to go and interview relatives and family about their own missing person, their own, you know, person, that loved one that, that turned up deceased. And so it was frustrating. Um, I don't know any specific numbers or t- statistics, but because Bighorn ha- County does have the highest concentration of cases um, that we've seen, um, one of the highest, I should say, um, it's, it's there. It really is there. And as you mentioned, this issue is much larger than the state of Montana or even the Great Plains or Rocky Mountain area. So I want to ask you, Rizal, um, how do you think this film that, that, that you know, really profiles these four specific cases, how can it increase overall awareness of MMIW issues elsewhere, say California, Arizona, Oklahoma, all other parts of Native America? Well, we've always thought of Bighorn County to serve um, as a microcosm to, like, the white issue. And so um, we didn't want to, I guess, overwhelm audiences with statistics and data because a lot of times, like, people check out when they start seeing numbers. Um, But we do, at the end of our every episode, have a title card where it points people towards um, an organization we paired up with, the NIWRC, the National Indian Women's Resource Center. Um, They're based out of Lame Deer, and they are the ones uh, doing a lot of on-the-ground grassroots stuff um, regarding MMIW and violence against women. And so we hope that, you know, if folks were to watch our series, they would, you know, want to know more. And so... There are resources out there um, regarding this issue that hopefully, you know, people can 
start to take notice in their own communities, like with, with what's happening in the world, because this does hit every community in North America, indigenous community. It certainly does. And I like your, your, your comment regarding statistics and how sometimes statistics don't really affect people in the same way that stories do. And that's something that anybody who watches this movie, Murder in Bighorn, this series, will really take away. So I want to thank you both, uh, Roselle and Matthew, for joining us today. Again, uh, the movie, the docuseries, Murder in Bighorn, premiering uh, on the Showtime streaming app tomorrow. Anybody with a question for our producers today, our directors, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. If you're looking forward to watching that uh, docuseries, Murder in Bighorn, we'd like to hear your comments. Joining us next from Rio Rancho, New Mexico, is Kimen Greyhorse. He is a film director and writer. He is Dene and Tongan. Kimen, welcome to Native America Calling. Hello. Thank you for having me. You bet, you bet. Wonderful to have you on the show. Well, uh, your uh, short series or short film, "I Am Home." Tell us more. What it's about? Yeah, so "I Am Home" is a poetic memoir. It's sort of a visual letter that speaks of introspection and and what it means to rediscover who you are and cherish where you come from. It also speaks of um, colonization and time and the resilience necessary to survive. And, and where did the inspiration come from for I Am Home? I had a chance to watch it last night. Yeah, so this film actually started off as a poem by itself uh, back in August of 2021, sort of right in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, at this point, I had been staying home isolating, you know, I haven't seen family or friends in person, and I hadn't gone out and filmed in anything in over a year. Uh, I was still in college at the time and was alone and lost mentally, and I think, you know, we all have those. Um, Rizelle, and uh, we're going to go ahead and go back to Rizelle, and um, Keeman, are you there? Didn't think so, yeah. Rizelle, are you there? Yeah. Okay, tell us a little bit more about the, the whole film festival there at Sundance. I know it just wrapped up last week. How long were you folks out there? Um, Matthew and I were there for about seven days, um, but it is like a 10, 11-day long festival. Um, every day there's films, events, panels, um, all within the main street of Park City, Utah, which is outside Salt Lake, Salt Lake City, Utah. And... Um, the films have multiple screenings at different venues. There's different movie theaters throughout the city, and even some screenings happen in Salt Lake. And, um, yeah, it's just a convergence of film, of independent film, usually. Um, every so often they'll get a, a large uh, uh, anticipated movie come through with, like, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of big-name actors come through, and it's a fun time. It's snowy, it's cold, you know hot cider and cocoa kind of thing. <laughs> and, and Matthew, how about you? Did the ignorant white guy, I, I feel so weird saying that on the air, but you used it first, so I'll say it. Uh, did, were you able to check out all the different native uh, documentaries and shorts and everything else? 
Oh, I'm embarrassed to say it's not even native or non-native. I didn't see a single film uh, while I was there because we were so busy. Um, I was so busy with uh, with Rizal doing press um, and going to certain panels and doing live speaking events. And, um, but I plan on catching all of them uh, in the upcoming months for sure. All righty. Well, folks, we're going to um, try and... Uh and get key men back here but let's go ahead and just learn a little, little bit more about what happened there at the the sundance film festival and so Rizal, you mentioned i mean it's cold and there's the hot chocolate and everything going it just sounds like a, a really really interesting fun time and uh do you recommend can anybody just go up there or, or do you have to have like a special pass or something yeah you know you can um you can attend the film festival without a special pass there are single single movie tickets that you can buy. There's actually even now um, online single viewing movie tickets that you can buy. You can experience some of the films, if not all of them, from any place. Um, Canada, I believe, uh, USA as well. Maybe it's just USA at this time. I forget. I'm so sorry. But, um, yeah, you can be in Albuquerque, Jersey City. You can be in Oregon, Seattle. And you can watch uh, certain films for like a, and you get to watch a, you get like a, you log in, get the link, you get to watch the movie once through, and then like that's it. So. All righty, all righty. Let's go back to Keeman Greyhorse now. Keeman, um, another really, really cool feature uh, or aspect of I Am Home is that it's all in, in Navajo. And, and who is the speaker, the Navajo speaker that's uh, doing the narration? Yeah, so that's my grandma speaking. Um, it's so interesting because obviously the I don't speak fluent in Navajo, right? So it, it it's the, the poem was in English, so I made the decision to have my grandma sort of help me out and translate it and have it be her voice in the film. Well, let's get a better feel for the film. Uh... We're listening to a young Navajo woman do some daily tasks around a Hogan. Again, this is from I Am Home. Kimen, are, are you looking to make your grandmother a, a movie star? Just, just a, an, a good narrator. <laughs> well, she, she does like that in front of the camera. She does that super, super well. And I got to tell you, so my, my, I have a nine-year-old daughter, and and we watched the, the short together. I just want to tell you, she really, really liked it. But the only thing that was kind of weird is we sat down on the couch to watch it. She got really comfy and was like really expecting, you know, this thing. And then, you know, it's a short, so it ends after a few minutes. She's like, "Well, what's going to happen next? What, what, what's going on?" She was really disappointed because she really, really connected with with the actor 
uh, in I Am Home, uh, Tira Folsom, I believe her name is. And she just thought that she just, she took, let me just share with you some of what she said. She said, to me, the movie, it, it represented life and how to appreciate it, love for the world, and how even though we change through time, um, we, we're still ourselves. And she really liked Tiara. She said she's a cool girl. And, uh, and to tell her that, to tell her what a, what a fantastic job she did in that short. So tell us more about Tiara. She was so good in that. Yeah, so I, you know, after I had finished writing writing the poem, I was like, I have this cool concept of turning it into sort of like a visual poem. And I wanted to talk about, you know, time and and how, you know, we as people have always adapted and and changed to our surroundings in order to survive. And I thought, you know, I envisioned a Dene woman wearing, you know, traditional clothes and then also seeing that same woman wearing modern clothes. So I hit up, Tierra is a good friend of mine, and we've worked on previous projects in the past, and I thought she would be perfect. So I reached out to her in September, and I was like, hey, you know, I have this idea, let's do it. And she was so down. Well, like I said, I, I brought my, I asked my daughter, because I, I thought it was really good to get a young Native girl's perspective on this, because it's definitely, there's a message of, of empowerment for sure. Native women, native young Native women, girls even empowerment. So I, I wanted to get that perspective of, of somebody who I think the, the film could really connect with. So that's why I brought her in. But but again, going back to it being a short, under two minutes, and, and what are the benefits of, of making a story that short? And then also, what are the, some of the challenges in that? Uh, it's, it's crazy because you're not the first person who's asked that question um, but, you know, this project started as a, as a personal project for me, um, and I just wanted it to be something I can play whenever I do need inspiration or whenever I'm feeling down, something short and sweet to sort of uplift my spirit. So it's so cool to uh, to hear that, you know, that resonated, you know, with you and your daughter. So uh, it was challenging. You know, we, we did shoot it in one day. Um, I don't live on the res, but on our family's land, you know, we, we have a modern style Hogan, but I specifically wanted a traditional style one. So I was calling, you know, family members. I'm like, Hey, is there someone, you know, that has a traditional style Hogan? They're like, Oh no. So then I called my chapter house and, and they got me in contact with David at the Navajo Nation Zoo. And that is where this film was shot. Um, I sort of did a little bit of planning of, of, you know, some of the shots that I was like, I need to get this, but most of it came, you know, on the spot with Tierra and seeing her in the environment and what I wanted to capture. I think hopefully I did a good enough job with the composition that you couldn't tell that it was the Navajo Nation Zoo. <laughs> I noticed that in the credits. Yeah, the Navajo Nation Zoo. They're in Window Rock, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, Keeman is. Uh, is this your first film, or have you done other work in the past? This was, at the time, was my second film. Um, I've done three films uh, so far. Another film was, is called Can I Love You? And it, it's based on my mom's upbringing on the reservation and and her being sort of the, the mother figure to a dysfunctional family. And then she receives an acceptance letter to college. 
Um, I did a previous work that that's called Two Spirit. It's sort of very, very experimental, um, just, you know, voicing my experience being Two Spirit in a world that, you know, at the time wasn't ready to hear that perspective. Interesting. Interesting. Well, again, uh, the short film is titled I Am Home, and we're talking with the film director and writer, Keeman Greyhorse. Keeman Greyhorse. And we are going to have to take uh, another break here, but if you've got a question for Keeman or you've got a question for one of our other guests, Rizal Benali or Matthew Galkin, phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. We're getting a recap on this year's Sundance Film Festival. We'll be right back. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There is still time to join our conversation today with Sundance Native filmmakers. Just call 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got Keyman Greyhorse on the line, film director and writer of the short film I Am Home. Keyman, how can our listeners learn more about I Am Home? They can go on Instagram and to follow our page, I'm Home Film, for updates. We have a lineup of film festivals um, that are coming later this year. All righty. Well, thank you again, Keeman, for joining us. And our next guest is uh, joining us uh, as well in California. We have Sky Hopinka. He is from the Pechanga Band of Luiseno Indians and the Ho-Chunk Nation. Sky, welcome back to Native America Calling. Uh, thank you. It's good to be back. You bet. Now, uh, your film, Sunflower Siege Engine. Tell us more about it. Well, it is definitely on the experimental side. Um, it came about as I was thinking about a few different things. One, <clears throat> NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, um, the reservation system, along with abolition, and also my own sense of self, my own sense of body, and the way that I move through the world. So it's a film that is abstract, it's musical, trying to weave together these different thoughts and ideas and see what I can come up with and see ways that they can make sense to me or help me navigate the world that I'm in. Now, I had a chance to, to stream the, the screener last night, and it was, yeah, it's a really, really interesting experience. Um, a lot of interesting footage, and I especially liked, uh, you know, some of the stuff from Alcatraz, and there was that full-color footage of Richard Oakes that I thought was super cool, and was that stuff hard to obtain? No, it wasn't, actually. I mean, I remember, like, reading about Richard Oakes and the first hearing about him in, like, the mid-2000s, you know, and it's just, like, it wasn't part of the narrative that I'd heard around Alcatraz. I mean, which tends to focus on just, you know, John Trudell, and, 
And it just was really eye-opening when I was in my early 20s to read a larger history of it and see more of the people involved. And so I always had Richard Oakes in the back of my head as I, as I thought about Alcatraz, as I thought about those movements. And there actually is a resource in the Bay Area called the Bay Area Film Archive or Bay Area Image Archive, which has a lot of archival news footage from that time um, on Alcatraz that's available on the website. So it just was really, I don't know, it was really wonderful to kind of just get a chance to dive through that archive and to see those the footage and to see those clips, those interviews. Yeah, I don't think I'd seen a, a clip like that in full color. It really stood out to me. It, it was really impactful. And then, and of course, the music, like you mentioned, what's the story behind the song in, in this film, Hopinka? Well, the the song is Tidal Wave. It's by a friend of mine who's who's done a few um, different songs and soundtracks for some films that I've made. And this is a, a song that she sent me like a few years ago, maybe a year or so ago. And it's just one that I was obsessed with and would listen to. I remember driving to Baltimore to see um, a friend of mine and just listening to it like, for hours on the road, which is kind of like what I tend to do. And at the end of the Richard Oakes' speech, he, he gets cut off by, by the news um, reporter and he doesn't finish the rest of the proclamation. And the end of it is just like how important it is for people entering the Golden Gate to see Alcatraz, the symbol of Indian lands and the history behind it. And the title of the song is Tidal Wave. And it just felt like a really nice transition into something that could kind of unify these different themes that I was working through with, I don't know, like bodyhood, about being in a place, about these sort of like unstoppable forces, and also who is receiving under the tidal wave and who is the source of the tidal wave. And I also wanted to make a little bit of a sing-along music video as well. Mm. Now, there was one quote in the film that really stood out to me also, and I'm going to read it. It's, there's no right way to be an Indian, just a whole lot of wrong ways. Where did that come from, Hopinka? Um, so that's a poem that I wrote um, uh, at this um, event at MoMA PS1 in New York that was honoring the Anishinaabe Chimawebe poet, Diane Burns. And I wrote that as a, an address to her. Um, there's just so much about her work that has resonated for years. I mean, she has this uh, line, this, uh, this ain't no Stoke look, this is my face. And that was just something that, I mean, it's just stuck with me since I first heard it, first read it. And as I was writing this poem to her in, in memory of her, she passed away some 15, 16 years ago. Um, I just was thinking about all these different ways to be native, to be Indian, and to, I don't know, just like, I don't know, it's the frustration at times, but it's just like, it's, it's an expansiveness of who we are that really gives us identity. It's like there is like no one right way to be an Indian, you know? It's just like each, each of these different tribes, there's over 500 fairly recognized tribes, the unrecognized tribes, native people that are working through these different ways of understanding how they exist in this world through the reservation system, through events like Alcatraz and living in the current day, you know? It's just like, it's, there's something to that uniqueness that's, I don't know, I, I think is really beautiful and also challenging at times. Well, let's take a listen. Here's a clip from Sunflower Siege Engine. I cough when I smoke these days. I don't remember when I stopped being young, but the pain in my body and weariness in my hands make it clear. It was a long time ago last night when I was losing voice at the lamps, following me down the street, saying, don't look at me anymore. Don't let them see me. I'm tired of my face and my voice and my hands. There's a failure in our walk, I think to myself, as I think about body and face and form and place and the way my hands look when they type these words, when they clap real loud, when they squeeze yours real tight, when they hold these books, when they clutch that beer, when they shake late at night after tossing. 
for hours on end, trying to dream those dreams I had when I was small, when you were old and when I saw them in your words and heard your voice. Guy, have you always been a poet? Um, <laughs> I've always wanted to be a poet. Is that is that your poetry there in that clip we just heard? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like when I first started, you know, making things, it was like you know, as a musician in a band, and then when I started, you know, my my long academic journey, like ten years of undergraduate, different community colleges and public colleges. Um, I just, English was always the kind of like guiding light for me. Like I want to write, I want to write, but I never really had that much confidence in it. And it wasn't until after I started making films that I kind of like understood that how I make films is the way that I make films. There's no right way or wrong way for that either. And it just kind of gave me more, um, I don't know, like courage or more, more faith in, in, in what I do. And so that like really encouraged me to, to start writing again and to include more of my poems and writings in my films. Well, this guy, we've talked about how Alcatraz, uh, you know, plays a big, a big role in, in this film, but uh, there's also a connection to Cahokia. Can you talk about that as well? Yeah. Um, so this summer I was doing this, um, uh, I was on like a sort of photo assignment for ProPublica um, for the story they were running on the Illinois State Museums and um, how Illinois has the most, cases has the most um, ancestors, funerary objects, they haven't returned, haven't repatriated back to the tribes out of the entire United States by a huge amount. I think it's like 10,000, 15,000. And I was, you know, traveling around Illinois doing that. And I had never been to Cahokia and I wanted to. Um, it's just, you know, I'm Ho-Chunk and it's just like, you know, our ancestors. And so I went down there and I, I had a camera, a Bolex, a 16 millimeter film camera, and I uh, was filming a bit around this sort of space, you know, just a sort of connection there. And that along with, um, actually it was just a few, it was like the few days after I was on a shoot in Illinois that I went up to Michigan to help some friends, um, Adam Khalil and Zach Khalil, who were working on their feature length documentary, um, Ancestors, um, and helped them shoot. And it was about repatriation. So there's this really strong through line of just this idea of the ancestors and getting them back, returning them home. Um, getting these objects, returning them home, that was really, I don't know, evidence in Cahokia itself, even just as how it's viewed, um, and even just how that ties into Alcatraz, you know, it's sort of prison. And I mean, I was thinking a lot about the last few years about how, you know, essentially like, you know, Native populations began their path to citizenship as Americans, as prisoners of war, you know, like what are, what are reservations, you know, and like just like how that's changed over time, but how a lot of it hasn't changed. And so just like trying to this connection between these different ideas and trying to reconcile that in some sort of poetic way. Well, some of these themes that you touch on, repatriation, uh, prison or internment, Alcatraz, some of these uh, early events, uh, native activism. And what is it that you really want your audiences to take away uh, from Sunflower Siege Engine? I mean, whatever they want to bring to it. I mean, that's what I really love about experimental, abstract, poetic work is that, I mean, it's, it's part of me just like working through these questions myself, you know, like I don't have any answers and I don't have any solutions, but I think it's just part of like working through these feelings and emotions and these complicated ideas 
and trying to present it in a work that kind of is, is, is a handout to someone that might see the images, might see the tape, might hear the poem, might hear Richard Oakes and arrive someplace else. You know, it's just like there's, there's, I mean, again, another refrain, like there's no right way to watch a film, you know, it's just like the audience brings something to it, whoever they are, wherever they're from. And it's just that sort of conversation that I think is really the generative part of it. I mean, that's, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the films that I make are never about answers. They're just about questions and conversation. And so if you feel something and you don't know how to describe it, then like that's, that's just as valid as if you, you know, want to write a 20 page paper on it. You know, I think it's just like having space for those feelings and emotions that maybe we haven't made time for before, or maybe we haven't been allowed to. That's a really cool point. I appreciate that. Yeah, I can relate to that. And, and you also recently got a, a genius grant and it, it comes with a, a monetary award. Congratulations. So what do you have coming up next? Um, thank you. Um, well, I'm taking time off teaching this semester, which um, is allowing me to kind of get caught up on a bunch of other work. Um, I have a, an art exhibition coming up this summer that I'm, I'm working on a new a four channel piece. And I have a feature length documentary, my second film, my, my second feature length film that I'm working on uh, later in the summer that is around powwows. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I want to ask you also, I mean, appearing in, in Sundance, I mean, how, how big a, an impact does that make for, for the potential future of, of a film like this, of Sunflower Siege Engine? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it's just like, I feel like the first time I went to Sundance was in 2016. And I think that's like when I was, was last on Native American Calling. And it was just like, it was such a huge experience for me, you know, like, I mean, it was in some ways it was validating um, that, you know, I can make an experimental film and have it screened alongside, you know, documentaries and narrative films. And I think too, just like, you know, what this last Sundance was like and how different it was from my time there. There's a lot more native filmmakers. There's a lot more like indigenous artists that are doing really amazing things in this space. And I think that that like will really, I don't know, like, it's just it's like, you know, kind of um, how can we all help each other as far as just like getting the word out, out about these films and using these sort of networks that we've created to kind of spread the word and also just like show the world that there's all kinds of native films out there to be seen. Well, Sky, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, again, the film is Sunflower Siege Engine and it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. We have time for a call and we've got Luella on the line in Billings, Montana. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because we've been talking about her on the show today. She's featured in, uh, Murder in Bighorn. Luella, hello. Hello. My ears were itching, so I thought <laughs> I'd call and see who was talking about me. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that was us. Nonstop. Well, tell us I more just, about I your experience. Wanted to, um, yeah, I wanted to kind of chime in a little bit. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the, the tone on set, because we did cover a lot of really heavy stuff, and it, it could have been a very hard experience but credit to our directors and our producers and the team that they put together we were able to get the work done and kind of put it away and then when we weren't filming we were allowed to feel other emotions without having a sense of guilt and you know when we have these conversations about murdered and missing indigenous people 
it's almost like once we start the conversation, we're not allowed to be happy anymore for a prescribed amount of time, whatever that arbitrary time is. It's like we, we don't want to allow ourselves to be happy anymore out of some sense of guilt or some sense of, of, of duty. Um, and I think that that kind of attitude around this issue is is toxic and so on set when you know when we were filming these really hard you know scenes where I'm talking about these cases you know there were times that I had breakdowns and you can kind of see parts of you know the remnants of that you can see tears on my face in some of the scenes um but we were allowed to put our emotions away and not feel bad about needing to put our emotions away and I think that if if that wasn't the case, I don't think I would have been able to finish filming. And, you know, I have to give mm-hmm. credit to our directors and our team for that. Um, because it did make the process a lot easier than it could have been. I, yeah, I can just uh, imagine what that would be like just to, to deal with such a, a tough topic like that. And were there people on, on set as well that you could... That, that people that involved in the project could like talk to counselors or anybody like that to just kind of help them if they were struggling at all, any points during the filming? Um, no, but I think we all had our own therapist at the ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we all kind of had our own, our own um, teams that we worked with anyway. I think, um, you know, working in, just working as a journalist, you, you have to have a therapist anyway, especially <laughs> covering these kinds of things. Um, almost on the daily basis. Um, but I think that Ivy and Rizal made it really easy for me to to talk things out. And if I had a really hard time, they made it really easy to kind of decompress, unpack everything, put it away right. nice and tidy, and then be able to move on. Like, they brought me back into the present Okay, Luella, thank you for calling in, and uh, also, you know, I just want to congratulate you as well on, on Murder in Bighorn, because yeah, I know Murder in Bighorn County, because you were a, a big part of that docu-series. Folks, we are going to have to wrap it up now. Uh, big thanks to our Sundance filmmakers, Sky Hopinka, Keeman Greyhorse, Roselle Benali, and Matthew Galkin. Join us again tomorrow on Native America Calling for a discussion about polar bears and their relationship with local communities in Alaska. I'm Sean Spruce. As people seek to know diverse cultures, tribal museums and cultural centers grow more popular. So the Institute of American Indian Arts, who support this show, now provides a Master of Fine Arts in Cultural Administration. Focused on social equity and support of cultural community growth, this program combines administrative tools and techniques with socially engaged leadership, blending institutional skills and community outreach programming. Deadline to apply is February 15 at iaia.edu mfaca. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.